the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me away today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And we continue in John 13, verses 31 to 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The word of the Lord. We continue our study of 1 John, uh, in which we find three vital signs of the spiritual life. Uh, by which we may test ourselves just as we've been saying every, every Sunday in this study, the same way that uh, we have vital signs of blood pressure, pulse, respiration, to see if, uh, if we're relatively healthy physically, our spiritual life is far more important even than our physical life. And so John has written this as he says at the end in chapter 5, verse 13, so that those who believe in Jesus might know that we have eternal life. He wants us to walk in that confidence. He also wants us to know if we've been presuming and don't meet these spiritual vital signs. And as we've seen, they are a doctrinal test or a test in what we believe to be true, and it centers on who Jesus is. Do we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed of God, all that God has declared him to be, and particularly as John develops it, he's concerned because of the teachers that he apparently was opposing in writing this letter. 
that we understand that he's both truly God and truly man. And he addresses both of those aspects. And then there is the, uh, the ethical or behavioral test that has to do with how we live. Is this belief in Jesus transforming our behavior? Is it just a dry doctrinal uh, truth that we hold? But James, the brother of Jesus, said, you believe? Well, the demons believe and have the good sense to tremble. But it hasn't transformed them. So is the truth transforming you? And then we come again today to the relational test, uh, the test of whether or not all of this new life is flowing out of us in a life that increasingly demonstrates the love that Christ has shown us. So look with me at 1 John chapter 3, beginning with verse 11, and we'll read down to the end of the chapter. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's interesting the way that uh, John opens this passage because if, if you remember way back to John chapter 1, he's used these exact same words before. Back in chapter 1 verse 5, he says, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if anyone says that he is in fellowship with God but he's still walking in darkness, well, he's a liar. So there he's focusing on what we believe to be true and how it works its way through us. Now he's coming to the heart of the relational test and he once again opens with those same words, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning and it is that we should love one another. 
And then he proceeds to develop it. That's verse 11, verses 12 through 15. He will give us the example of someone who did not love and the devastating consequences for him and for his family and for humanity, and that was Cain. And we'll talk about him in a minute. Then beginning in verse 16 down through, I think, verse 18, we have a contrary picture and illustration of our Lord Jesus as the supreme example of one who loved in a life-giving way and should be our model as well as the one who is loving through us. And then finally, in the closing verses, he basically says, okay, what are you going to do with this? What, what do you do if your heart convicts you? And he, he, as we just read, he says it's a great thing when your heart doesn't condemn you because then you, you find yourself at peace with God. But if your heart is condemning you, what do you do about it? So that's where I aim to go this morning. If I lose my way, you'll at least know what we intended. This first verse, again, remember that he's calling us to love as he's been doing and as the Bible constantly does. And I think too often people miss the heart of the message of the Bible. If someone were to say to you, what is the core call of the Scripture? You couldn't go far wrong if you said, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and all our strength. We are to love our neighbor as ourself, and in fact, we're to love one another even as Christ has loved us. And then you give the narrative and say, the whole problem is God made us for this. We didn't do it, and we set out running from God, and God in His grace has set out after us and is going to draw us back to Himself. So that's sort of the narrative structure of Scripture, but don't ever lose sight of the fact that the heart of the Scripture is this astonishing revelation in a world where people feared their gods and thought that they were like people, always fighting, always fussing, manipulating people. Here comes the one true God and reveals Himself as one who is love. Now, remember that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and most of the New Testament writers, probably uh, all but maybe one, uh, were also Jews, and so their native language was Hebrew or Aramaic, a Semitic language related to Hebrew. And uh, so when the New Testament writers wrote in Greek, even though it was, we believe, inspired by the Holy Spirit, we're getting uh, one culture interpreted to us through another culture. And we make much of all the different words in the Greek for love, and I've done it, but bottom line is they were thinking in Hebrew categories, not in Greek. So the call to love is a call to recognize what God has been willing to do in order to redeem us and to ask, is all this faith that you profess, all this good theology that you've learned, is it transforming your life and making you into a person who from time to time astonishes his family, astonishes her friends, astonishes your children, by the nature of your love for them. 
So he wants to illustrate and tell us how deadly and dangerous it is when we do not give ourselves intentionally to the God of love to love through us. And he uses this illustration of Cain. And it's a story you know. But sometimes a little background helps us to appreciate it even more. You remember that in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve fell. And God came and pronounced judgment, but in the, and it's really, I mean, it's a painful scene, but it's almost funny because each one of them is pointing and he goes to Adam and he says, she made me do it. He talks to Eve. She says, the snake made me do it. Uh, he's looking around for somebody to blame, Ain't nobody else. But this perpetual refusal to take responsibility, but in the midst of pronouncing judgment, God pronounces the gospel for the first time. It's called by theologians the proto-euangelion from evangel, the first giving of the gospel, Genesis 3.15. In the midst of pronouncing the curse, he says to the woman, but you're not going to die yet. You're going to have children, and your seed is going to crush the head of the serpent. It's the declaration, the promise that there will be a redeemer who will come and make this right. And so it's fascinating that when her first son is born, Cain, they name him Cain, which is basically, we've got him. Like, here he is. God promised he'd send the redeemer, and we've got him now. This is God's gift to humanity. And Cain obviously thought of himself in those terms. He'd been raised apparently to believe that he was God's gift, and he seemed to act as though he was God's gift. Even in God's presence, he could determine the kind of gift that he brought to God, and God was just lucky he brought it because, after all, he was the man whom Eve had gotten. Now, if you think I'm stretching the translation, it becomes more obvious that that's what was up when we look at what she named her second son. They named him Abel, which in Hebrew is Hevel, which means vanity, vapor, nothing. It's in Ecclesiastes when, the, when Solomon writes, vanity of vanity, all is vanity, the word was Hevel of Hevel, all is Hevel. It's able, it's nothing, it's insignificant, it blows away. So you have this one son who is, he's God's gift to humanity, and boy does he believe it. And the other son who's, you know, it's fine, little old nothing over here, but he's insignificant, he's not the redeemer. And they grow up, and the one tends the ground, which was fine, the other takes care of the flocks. But God apparently had called for a blood sacrifice. God had already offered one. What did God do when Adam and Eve sinned? They tried to cover themselves with the little fig leaves of good works. They tried to find something to do to cover themselves and hid from each other. And we read that God made clothes for them from skins. That required the death of an animal the first picture of death there. The blood is shed, and now God calls for sacrifice looking back on that. And Abel brings a blood offering to God. But God's gift to humanity just 
figures maybe Goddard likes some zucchini. I've got a nice batch this year. I'll give him, I'll give him something from the garden. So he comes with what he wants. And God accepts Abel's sacrifice but rejects Cain's. And Cain cannot bear to be rejected. Cannot bear to be number two, especially to this hevel, this vapor of a brother of his. And so in the end, he goes out and kills him. You may say that's awfully dramatic, a picture. I mean, okay, yes, sometimes, sometimes a failure to love, sometimes self-love, which is always at the root, a pathetic wrong self-love and self-obsession is what leads to hatred of others. Because it's all about me, can't be about them. But as we'll see in a moment, there are other pictures in Scripture, including the one from our second lesson from John 13, that may make it clearer to us. In contrast, we have Jesus. And the contrast between the two, I would say, I would put like this. Cain loved himself, and so he was willing to sacrifice others. Jesus loved others, and so he sacrificed himself. That's really the picture, the contrast here. And it really comes clear if you think for a moment about our gospel lesson, John 13. Did you notice when uh, the text opened, it said, after he'd gone out, Jesus said these words. Well, do you remember who had gone out before Jesus gave the new commandment to love as he had loved? It was Judas. If you think of John chapter 13, this is John's telling of the, the Last Supper. The others all give us the institution of it. But John takes us deeper into what was happening in the room and depicts it as if it were a play with three leading characters. There is Judas, who's representing the enemy, Satan, who wants to put an end to Jesus' ministry. There is Jesus, who will tell them over and again in this section that he has come on the Father's behalf to reveal the Father to them, to show them who the Father is. And therefore, by the way, what you and I who are made in the Father's image are meant to be made by redemption. And there's a third figure that we'll note in a moment. Jesus, in that incredible scene in John 13, wanted to teach them a final lesson. We read, having loved them, he loved them to the end. And so he took off his robe and put a towel around his waist and got down on his knees to wash their feet. Why was that so astonishing? And why did Peter say to him, Lord, not my feet, you can't wash my feet? Because there was only one job that a Jewish slave who had sold himself out into slavery, only one job that you could not ever ask him to do, and that was to wash your feet. That was considered the lowest, most shameful thing that you could possibly do, and no one but a Gentile slave was to wash your feet. And so Jesus puts a towel around his waist, gets down on his knees, and you can see him there with his hair hanging down and the sweat running down. 
crawling from one, and they, they weren't wearing, this wasn't like when the Pope does it, when a bunch of bishops who've gone and had pedicure before they went, and you know, these were people who wore sandals on dusty roads. Their feet were dirty, they needed to be clean. And here is the Lord of the universe who created the heavens and the earth, crawling from one filthy set of feet to the next as his disciples sit there burning with shame, seeing the one they call master like this. And of course, Peter, who always talked too much, that's why I identify with him, Peter, who always talked too much, goes, no, no, I'm not going to let you do that. And Jesus says, if you don't do that, that, if you don't let me do this, you have no part in me. And so he says, well, not just my feet, wash me all. And Jesus is like, down boy, you know, just, <laughs> we're just going to do the feet because if you've been cleaned, you only need your feet done. And then he puts on his robes and resumes his seat and says, you call, you call me Lord and Master, and I am. And if I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, if I have loved you like this, where I'm willing to take the lowliest place to do the most menial thing needed, do you get what that means for you? You're arguing the whole way into Jerusalem over which one of you will be greatest when we get here? And I've come to give myself. And he says, one of you will betray me they're saying, who is it, Lord? And of course, they go to the beloved disciple, John, writing this, remembering this, because he's sitting there by Jesus, kind of leaning against him, talking, because you reclined at table in the east. You didn't sit. You were on chaise lounge sort of a thing, all reclining together. And so they say, ask him who he's talking about. Christian art, historically, especially Renaissance art, has not accurately depicted Judas, because you can always pick him out. You see the 12, you know, and you can pick John because they usually depict him as, you know, the little clean shave, little John leaning there, the young guy, that must be John. Peter, probably the guy with the biggest beard, but then off on the side looking shady, usually with a beard that kind of curls up and he's kind of like this, looking at everybody. I mean, anybody would know that was the betrayer, but when the disciples had to decide Who's going to carry the purse for us? Who's going to keep the money? Who is totally trustworthy? Judas. That's our guy. He's someone we can trust. He's an honest man of affairs. And so when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, they don't all look at Judas. They all go, who? Ask him, who? Is it I, Lord? What's going on? Well, he says, the one I give this bread to. And at an Eastern feast, for the master of the feast to take a piece of of that flat bread and dip it in hummus or whatever and hand it to someone is a mark of special favor, an invitation into relationship. It is a mark of love. Jesus, at this last moment, knowing who would betray him, offers him from his own hand a chance for redemption. And Judas takes the gift and eats it. 
but it's not the Holy Spirit that enters him. We read, and Satan entered him. You can sit at the Lord's table. You can come and take the elements. But if in your heart you are determined to sacrifice others for the sake of your own life, you can be eating and drinking judgment and damnation unto yourself, brothers and sisters. This is why these things matter. They're not just symbols and things we do and then go home and do the stuff we really care about. God is watching. God cares. And so we read that Satan entered him and he went out and it was night. And I don't think it's just telling us what time of day it is. It's saying darkness had come. Now, why did I go through all that? Because you see the exact same pattern. Judas loved himself and so sacrificed Jesus. Jesus loved others and so sacrificed himself. But to me, the most convicting part of it all is the third one who stars in this play, and that's Peter. When the disciples are saying, who is it that's going to betray you? Peter says, they may, but not I. I'll go with you to the end. If I've got to die, I'll go. I'll and no one ever spoke more sincerely. Peter's problem at this point was that he thought he was like Jesus, but he wasn't yet like Jesus. He was still just like Judas. And both of them at the end went out into the night and wept bitter tears. The difference was that Judas's were only tears of remorse, and he ended up killing himself, while Peter's were tears of repentance, and he knew God's grace and was found and drawn back to the heart. So there's the picture, the contrast. And I must confess too often when, when my blood is up, when someone has offended me, when someone has had the arrogance to think that their views are better than mine, I begin to want to get up on my hind legs and put them in their place and show that they are wrong and I'm right. I want to ask you this morning, is there anybody in your life who's really wounded you and you just have not been willing to forgive them. I, we can't always reconcile with people. And there are some people who are so toxic that it's better just to, to give them a birth. But we need to seek to be reconciled to everyone and to let it go before the Lord and to learn to pray for them again and ask God to bring all good things into their life. And where we see, as he says, a need, he says, if you, what does love look like? Well, if you see your brother or sister hurting and you have the means to alleviate that, to help them in whatever way, that's the mark of love. And if you withhold it and you say, yeah, I could do something about it, but you know, then I couldn't do this thing I really want to do or get this thing I really want. There it is. Are we living out of self-love and ready, however subtly, in whatever sophisticated a way, so that we're so good at it that they don't even notice that we've manipulated them into doing what we want. In other words, has the Lord yet 
in the power of the gospel working through the power of his spirit turned our hearts where we realize that our lives are now to be lived for the sake of others. It's not that the Lord wants us to have a bad self-image. He just wants us to stop thinking about ourselves all the time. Just think about others. Look for ways to minister to others. Care for others. That's the mark that you love. And what do I do when my heart convicts me? He ends just as he's begun. He says, okay, let's do it again. And he literally lists. He says, you keep his commands. His command is that you believe in his son. There's the doctrinal test. His command is that you love one another. There's the relational test. It, keep his commands. There's the lived out command to, to live Christ. Brothers and sisters, this, this is all. You, any one of you could stand up and give this lesson. We all know it. It's in the execution of it that we stand or fall. It's marked in our marriages by whether we are perpetually offended by a spouse that we think doesn't understand us or get us. I think more marriages fail because husbands and wives put on one another the burden of giving them what only God can give them. The key to a successful marriage you stop thinking about yourself and start thinking about your spouse. Even if you have a sneaking suspicion that your spouse is not thinking about you as much as you wish your spouse were. But you just do it. You just keep loving with your children, with your parents, with that annoying coworker. You just keep loving. Brothers and sisters, how does this congregation flourish by loving one another by loving this community. By this, all will know that we are his by the love that we have for one another. Father, thank you. It's a call to be what every one of us wants to be, but apart from your grace, will not be and cannot be consistently because we always turn back on ourselves and, and seek to get what we want and to make others help us get what we want. And I confess before these people that I'm preaching beyond myself, longing to be more and more this person that's described by John. And I pray that together in this place as a family, that we will help one another love one another and love the community around us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you stand?